For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The governor signed an executive order to have the state's more than 30,000 workers become substitute teachers as schools suffer from the recent COVID-19 outbreak. The order is effective for 120 days, and Stitt says the intent is to get state employees to start contracting school, contacting schools to sign up as replacement for teachers. Neva, what do you think of the governor's executive order? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's met certainly with mixed reviews. I think when we look at the order itself, I mean, uh, this I mean, this is the governor's plan that he's uh, that he's rolled out. He had the uh, state chamber uh, come alongside and kind of uh, uh, buy into the plan and in terms of allowing and and uh, really pushing their member membership and the business community to also you know, come forward and and be willing to substitute. But I think the larger picture is is this. I mean, it's the mechanics of it. I mean, even even putting this in place this week, signing the executive order, thirty two thousand state employees. I think the first day they said there were a hundred hundred plus that signed up. It's a slow pro. It's going to be a slow process. Um, even though this uh, order will go basically through the school year, I mean, on the 120 days, get them into May. Um, I think the bigger question is, again, can they get through the process? They still have to have this FBI criminal background check. Uh, it takes approximately 60 days, according to most folks that have said, once you get the paperwork ready and send it in, that's the time frame you're looking at. So this isn't just something where they can put people immediately in the classrooms. Um, and I think we've already seen and talked about the fact that in some of these uh, school districts, they already have had um, they've had leaders and, and folks in their communities already on a list, already pre-cleared, gone through the process and available to be utilized in their schools. And I think, again, all all politics is local. And in this instance, uh, dealing with these these issues of shortages of teachers in the classrooms, that's a that's largely a local issue that I think we're going to see more of a push at the local level for folks to come up with solutions in their own communities. Is this a is this a plan that uh, in concept can work? I think I think we wait and see because of just the 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 technical side of being able to put this in place. Ryan. Well, you know, I'm going to start off by doing something that I think that the governor probably should have done a week ago and that the secretary of education should have done a week ago. And that's to say thank you to our teachers and the substitutes that and the administrators. Um, I mean, for the last two years, but especially with the Omicron variant and the, the spike in cases that we've seen, um, our teachers and the administrators and the support staff, they have already been under tremendous burden. Uh, they have been providing invaluable services to our kids, whether it's been during remote learning and you know they're learning that on the fly themselves uh, or whether it's in person. And in some instances, risking their own health and safety by showing up in person. Uh, just a, a quick spotlight, Ron Stahl, who's a super volunteer uh, uh, substitute, uh, not a volunteer, but a substitute teacher over at Cleveland Elementary. I can't tell you how many classes that one day he's in my daughter's class, the next day he's in my son's class. Um, and that's really what is the problem with substitute teaching is that even when you have fantastic substitutes like Mr. Stahl, if you don't have that continuity, um, you know, a lot of these 
educators have been quick to remind everybody they're not just babysitters. They are professionals. They are trained to do this job. And so just putting a warm body in the seat may do something, uh, but it's certainly not taking the place of a, of a teacher. Um, you know, this whole situation is, is yet another example of where I feel like the governor has created an adversarial position where he just did not have to. Um, you know, Neva said that he was uh, joined by the State Chamber of Commerce and trying to bolster this plan. Who you didn't see on the stage with him uh, or, or, or at the press conference with him were teachers and educators. Um, they, they've largely been in the classrooms, in the trenches, and they feel very slighted by what the governor has done here. Neva mentioned the, the structural roadblocks, the background checks. Hey, as a parent of, of two kids in uh, public elementary schools in Oklahoma, you know, I want volunteers, but you know what? I don't, I don't want a bunch of strangers just showing up uh, and sitting in a classroom. Uh, I don't want that as a parent. I don't think most parents want that. We all want our kids back in school. But the questions that the governor should ask right now is instead of telling the schools what they're giving them, he needs to be asking, what do you need? Do you need more Chromebooks? Do you need more supplies? What do you need? Do you need testing kits? And give, it, give them what they need and ask them what they need rather than telling them. You know, it's interesting, too. I mean, we've seen some interesting twists. Uh, even this week earlier, the Broken Arrow City Council unanimously approved uh, a uh, what they called a mutual aid agreement with the Broken Arrow Public Schools, basically allowing their employees uh, eight hour up to eight hours a week, basically a day a week uh, to be um, to be utilized on one of the uh, campuses, one of their school campuses. So, you know, again, whether that's substitute teaching or helping in a cafeteria or helping, you know, administratively, clerically or whatever. I mean, at the local level, I think we're seeing I think we're seeing a focus of how can we help each other and how can we get through this uh, problem of having so many folks out in such a concentrated period of time, knowing that, you know, th there seems to be every indication we're going to get through this uh, well before the end of the school year, but it does put things into the conversation of how do we be positioned to address these kind of, uh, these kind of challenges when they come along quickly, but do it as you say, Ryan, I mean, we're, we're the public uh, and everyone has a a, a buy-in, and B, uh, understands that all of the protocols and all of the uh, issues in terms of safety and concerns have been adequately addressed. And Eva, just real quick, I think that your, your mention there, I think that the collaboration, the sense of community, the outpouring of people wanting to do something, that's one of the real bright spots in this in this entire deal. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that as, as we, you know, are in, you know, the, the second year of this, of this pandemic, that we can have more instances like that where people see opportunities to to jump in and help, but then you know do it in a way that we all um, you know we all we all want it to happen. The Omicron wave of the coronavirus is taking its toll on hospitals across the state. Healthcare workers say the system is overburdened as it's facing shortages of healthcare workers and supplies. The Tulsa World reported a person died in a rural hospital because of kidney failure as no hospital could receive the patient. As of Thursday morning, we had more than 1,700 COVID-19 patients in Oklahoma hospital beds. Ryan, how desperate is this situation? It's a crisis. Um, the... You know, no one, no one in Oklahoma in 2022 should die because they couldn't get into the hospital that would have given them the, the advanced level of skilled care that they needed to save their life. You know, nobody should be in that position in 2022 in Oklahoma. I don't care whether you live in a small rural town in Southeast Oklahoma or you live in Tulsa or Oklahoma City. That just should not be a situation, but that is the situation right now. 
we were talking just a moment ago about substitute teachers and the staffing shortages that we're seeing at, at elementary or at public schools around the state. Those staffing shortages, I mean, if, if your local Starbucks doesn't have enough uh, folks that show up to work, you know, they'll just hang a sign on the window. Um, but there is a, a hospital administrator uh, that was quoted in a, in a story recently who said, we don't have that option. You know, we are open 24 seven. We can't close our doors. We have to make do. And so when you've got supply shortages and uh, staffing shortages, staffing shortages because people are testing positive, but also staffing shortages because we simply don't have enough healthcare workers in the state of Oklahoma, um, it creates a very dire situation. I, you know, my wife is a, a pharmacist. She works for you know, one of the big retail pharmacies uh, chains in, uh, in Oklahoma. And she's worked at, I think, three, maybe four different stores than she normally works at over the last couple of weeks because she'll get a call and say, hey, can you go pick up a shift? And you know, when you're talking about those retail pharmacy jobs, those are the people that are giving vaccines, uh, testing, you know, medication for all, all number of things. And when you get into the hospital situation, it's, it's even more dire. So getting folks into those jobs, it's a serious situation and we all need to do our part to try to slow the spread and control it as much as possible so these healthcare workers can do their jobs and save our lives when they need to. Neva. And you're right, Ryan. I mean, it, I mean the Oklahoma City, the four hospital systems in Oklahoma City, by their own admission, they have 300 fewer beds staffed today than they did a year ago. So, I mean, they're dealing, they're dealing with their issues uh, at the same time that the uh, COVID hospitalization rate is nearing the, the high that we saw last summer during the Delta wave. So, I mean, we are in, you know, we're in the eye of the storm. We're dealing with, uh, you know, again, almost unimaginable consequences in terms of the shortages of ICU beds uh, not even being available as of this week, um, and all of the concerns and and issues that that, that surround that. So it's it's uh, regrettably an ongoing conversation, something we're going to continue to talk about. I think for weeks to come. Uh, I think clearly in the medical community, they are all hands on deck as they have been from the outset, trying to address this uh, issue as. Uh, as best possible. Rural communities, very challenged in the smaller hospital settings, as well as now in the metropolitan hospitals where, you know, we're seeing the fact that, you know, many, many uh, of their employees are out for the very reason that their hospitals are filled. So, um, you know, we could talk about this all day long, but I think the, the, the clear takeaway is that uh, Oklahomans are certainly aware of what we're dealing with. And I think uh, by and large, uh, we, we, have a, we have a climate out there where people are wanting to be helpful and proactive in uh, helping to assist in the problem rather than compound the problem. New numbers from the state election board show registered voters have increased by more than 100,000 over the past two years. The Republican Party saw growth along with independents and libertarians while the Democratic Party declined. Republicans make up 50.6% of registered voters with Democrats at 31.4% and independents 17.2%. Neva, what do you think of these numbers? Well, I mean, it, it really follows the decades long trend that we've continued to see. I mean, we've talked about it, uh, you know, for a number of years on the show. I mean, the fact that uh, Republicans do see the incremental increases in uh, 
registration growth. And we have seen, just like uh, these numbers reflected that were released this week, Democrat registration again declined dramatically. I mean, over 40,000. Um, you know, it, uh, it was the was the decline from the from the last numbers that were released. So, but you know, I think more fascinating is when we look at independents and libertarians. Independents had a about a forty nine thousand increase in registration, but libertarians had almost seven thousand. And I mean, I think that uh, in some measure is a little surprising uh, because we we have not seen kind of those those um, numbers kind of begin to uptick at that level um, in, in the past. But again, I think it's this growing disenchantment, uh, you know, uh, with some of the younger voters in particular with the two, you know, with the two major parties and not being willing to go that direction of Republican or Democrat. I think older voters we're seeing, continuing to see many longtime lifelong Democrats that are changing their registration and that, that decrease of the 40,000 plus uh, certainly reflects that as well. So uh, bottom line, you know, we're a red state. We continue to be a very bright red state in terms of Republican registration and the continued growth of Republican registration. And I don't think we'll see that trend change anytime soon. Ryan. Yeah, I think Neva's right. I mean, uh, a lot of this is is unsurprising. I think that, you know, Neva's comments about the rise in independent voters and registered libertarians, especially that the pretty significant bunk among libertarians. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm wondering if that was correlated with any sort of uh, 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 libertarian voter registration drive. Um, but I think really what it reflects is an increasing number of Oklahomans um, that want more choices than they're offered in the two-party system in Oklahoma. Um, you know, the, the two-party system does an awful job of reflecting the actual political nuances that exist among Oklahomans. I mean, we are, we're complicated people. Uh, and we have, you know, some, some pretty wildly disparate beliefs sometimes that don't fit neatly, most of the time don't fit neatly into, you know, a, uh, uh, an understood Democratic box or an understood Republican box. And so, you know, people are looking for options. Un unfortunately, the the kinds of institutions that we have, um, you know, make it almost impossible for a uh, third party candidate to, to win in any of these uh, winner take all elections where you got to get 50 percent plus one of the vote. And even though we're seeing growing numbers of independents and libertarians, nobody's close to that 50 percent number. You're still trying to build votes from other parties. And that's a that's a really difficult thing to do. Um, the, the two party system really, you know, as we've seen America divide itself uh, increasingly, uh, especially over the last decade, uh, decade plus, um, you know, my sense is that the two party system exacerbates those divisions in Americans um, and you know, puts us into, you know, more and more uh, increasingly, you know, tribal forms of politics. Um, and, you know, those identities make it impossible for us to sit down and, and have conversations with each other um, and where you're almost apologetic to your own base for sitting down with somebody that you disagree with. And I think that um, until we have some reforms to the way we elect individuals and break that two party system, you know, we're going to see this trend of folks moving to Republicans in Oklahoma because we're a red state. We'll see independents and libertarians grow. But again, I don't think we'll have a political system that really reflects the actual political uh, landscape in Oklahoma until we make these institutional changes. I think arguably the the two the two parties clearly in in kind of broad brush strokes you would say you know really divide on conservative and liberal ideology and I think when you see that framework in Oklahoma 
we are we are a strong conservative state whatever brand or definition you want to give to that in terms of in terms of how Oklahomans view government how they view the people that they um that they vote for and elect to public office I mean I think they have a certain view and a certain standard there certainly are you know there's a spectrum on both sides conservative and, and democrat nowadays uh in terms of uh, what that conservative and liberal what that looks like uh, on Democrat and Republican um, definitions. But I think that the two party system still works. And I think what we find is the independents uh, become the swing, you know, oftentimes in some of these elections. And the question is, do they lean more conservative or do they lean more liberal um, in their thinking and how that uh, how that translates to where they vote? Because in general elections, they are going to vote and they are going to vote for one of the two major party candidates in most instances. So it's a fascinating uh, conversation and something that you know, I think uh, we'll continue to talk about uh, as time goes on, particularly in this election season. A second petition is circulating to have voters decide on the legalization of recreational marijuana. Organizers say it's a new version of an initiative which failed to get enough signatures two years ago. It appears similar to a petition filed in October, but instead state question 820 would make recreational marijuana statutory rather than constitutional. Ryan, would this make it easier to get it on the ballot? You're muted. Absolutely, it would. And just you know, full disclosure for our listeners, I'm uh, working with the, the team of folks that's uh, put forth state question 820 and filed it with the Secretary of State's office with the hope of it appearing uh, on a ballot in 2022. I think the most likely ballot would be the November 2022 election, but we'll we'll see how uh, everything unfolds over the next weekend with signature collection and uh, that'll that'll really determine where it, where it lands on a ballot. But absolutely, I mean, you're talking, you know, um, trying to collect, and this is including some cushion in, in, your, in your signature gathering, you know, about 100,000, a little over 100,000 signatures versus needing to collect you know, north of 200,000 signatures uh, for a constitutional uh, amendment. Now, Michael, you said that this was the third. Uh, there, there are actually three marijuana initiatives that have been filed, 818 and 819. Um, both of those uh, would amend the state constitution. One would move the medical program to the state constitution, and the other would uh, create an adult use or a recreational program in the state constitution. State question 820 takes a very different tact, and that is to put it in statute. Um, to, uh, you know, this is a very rapidly evolving area of policy, both at the state level and the federal level. Legislators need the flexibility to be able to respond to challenges or opportunities as they arise. We don't need to amend the Constitution every time uh, we need to change cannabis policy in Oklahoma. But I can tell you, you know, looking at internal polling number, uh, Oklahomans are ready to vote for recreational marijuana. They're tired of seeing uh, low-level marijuana offenses continue to be criminalized uh, in the state of Oklahoma. And they're tired of giving up tens of millions in revenue that, that could be plugged into uh, core state services uh, like education and healthcare um, uh, in the state of Oklahoma. So I think that, you know, if this gets on the ballot, I think it, it stands a very good chance. And again, I'm, I'm biased uh, as working with the 820 folks, but I, I do think that the statutory process or the statutory uh, effort is the, the more responsible um, and, and a better way to move forward with this evolving area of policy. Neva. 
<laughs> well, the fact that we've got three conversations going on here and these three different ideas uh, that the voters are going to have to take a look at, you're, you know, I need a scorecard to figure out, you know, who's who and what's what. I'll make you one. I, and I think that's, <laughs> well, I, th I think that's going to be the challenge for everyone involved in, in these uh, campaigns is when voters get confused, they tune it out, they tend when they don't know for sure what they think the facts are, they either vote no or they don't vote at all. And so the challenge I think is going to be, I mean, already it's been, you know, one of the one of the things uh, that that's been said on, you know, uh, on the state question 819 was it's crafted Oklahomans for Oklahomans and, it, and they characterize it as the homegrown effort. They characterize the state question 820 effort as being the corporate cannabis effort. Uh, you, so you've got all of these different, you know, is it statutory? Is it this? Is it that? Um, and, you know, bottom line, we already have medical medical marijuana in in this state. And I think there is some buyer's remorse among voters who, you know, who bought into that, went along with that, thinking, okay, for the folks that really need it for the medical purpose, um, you know, we'll kind of go down that road. But now the conversation naturally has evolved into kind of full-blown recreational marijuana. And I, you know, I think that when you've already got what is it approaching a half a million uh, Oklahomans with uh, medical marijuana cards today? Uh, the we've talked about dispensaries, uh, you know, on every corner, basically, in, in communities across the state. Um, I think the the question and the and the interesting thing to watch with these campaigns is is how they can develop a narrative that gets. Um, that gets the attention of Oklahomans, and you know where does that finally move? Because you know one of the one of the things about these efforts to get the signatures, if you talk about a 77 county volunteer effort like one of the campaigns is talking about, that's a big challenge and a heavy lift for anybody in any campaign on any subject. So I think we'll watch with interest to see you know how this moves along and who can really get the traction, get the money behind it, and and uh, be able to really develop a full blown campaign. To to get something done in this 2022 elections uh, election cycle. And even I think that that's right. You know, as as this unfolds, um, you know, before voters ever look at this, voters are going to have to look uh, on a ballot. They're going to have to look at it with signature collectors out there explaining these ballot initiatives and trying to garner the signatures that they need to even qualify for the ballot. Um, as you mentioned, if it's an all volunteer, all 77 county effort. You're going to, I mean, you're, you're talking about collecting in excess of 400,000 signatures. Um, that wouldn't just be, uh, you know, a big deal. It would be historic. I mean, it, it's never happened before. Uh, state question 788 uh, collected almost 70,000 signatures, and that was an all-volunteer effort then, um, and they barely got there. Uh, so I think that you've got, if you want to have this on a ballot, you've got to have a, a solid campaign, you got to have funding, and you've got to be ready to, to put it uh, out, you know, put some money to collect those signatures. And, and the signature collection itself, you know, we hear lawmakers talking about how easy it is to get something on the ballot. I've, I have been a part uh, in leadership on, I, I don't know how many ballot questions at this point in my life. It's not easy, I promise you. And it often costs a lot of money. I mean, your uh, signature collection just on a statutory ballot initiative, I can tell you, budgets are in excess of a million dollars just to collect the signatures. That's not even to run the campaign. Neva had mentioned about the medical marijuana and seeing a dispensary on every corner. Ryan, does it also help, although that might be maybe considered negative to some people, but maybe a positive side is being able to see medical marijuana and Oklahoma, yeah, after passing it, 
didn't devolve into some kind of chaos because medical marijuana had passed. Well, and you, it, you're hard pressed now to find an Oklahoman uh, who either isn't a patient or doesn't know someone who's a patient and uses marijuana. So stigma has has really evaporated. It's still there, but stigma has has largely evaporated. And I do my best to try to destigmatize marijuana use. I'm a patient myself, and uh, you know I try to you know, I've been able to, you know, you know, hold, you know, make, make money for my family and be a productive member of society and all that stuff. Um, but I think that as we've seen stigma go down, Oklahomans look at the current system and like, okay, well, we've got this. There is a sense that we have adult use or recreational already. Um, that's a, I think a harder story story to sell to the thousands of Oklahomans that still deal with either old marijuana convictions or people that are dealing with new marijuana convictions uh, and sitting in county jails right now uh, with marijuana convictions. It's a harder story to say that whenever we can have a 21 and up system and we could be taking tens of millions of dollars from Texas uh, and Texans that want to come to Oklahoma and spend their money here, but we're not right now. We're leaving a lot of money on the table. And you know, so in a lot of ways, this isn't a huge change. It's not too radical, but at the same time, um, it would be a huge change in, in the way that the criminal justice system treats these folks and the amount of revenue that we're able to generate for state services. It would be a huge change. I mean, on the criminal justice side, because you're talking about the this this law would apply retroactively. And um, I mean, the, you know, they use the number 60,000 Oklahomans that would be uh, helped or affected by that change in the law. But Again, I think that's going to be one of the central talking points uh, in the whole conversation when this when this uh, campaign really gins up. I think the other fascinating thing is that we're already hearing that there is a major national money, uh, this uh, new approach pack uh, that has been involved and spent literally tens of millions of dollars in in marijuana legalization campaigns across the country, apparently is interested in what's going on in Oklahoma. If they start infusing, you know, literally millions of dollars into the campaign equation on top of a, a political season when we already have major campaigns from top to bottom and millions uh, projected to be spent, it will be a very cluttered, very confusing, very uh, challenging field, I think, uh, for any state question on any subject, this one and any others that uh, lawmakers may decide to throw on the table during the session. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.